Well, good morning. We are in a series through the New Testament book of Second Peter. Encourage you to turn in your Bibles with me this morning to Second Peter, and we will be looking at Second Peter chapter two, starting to read in the second half of verse ten down through verse sixteen. As you're turning to the book. Remember with me that Peter started out this letter by establishing the importance of Christian maturity. That for those of us who have placed our faith in the person of Jesus Christ, it is imperative that we seek to continue to grow, to strive after uh, maturity in our Christian lives. And having laid that foundation in chapter 1, Peter begins talking about a major roadblock to spiritual maturity in chapter 2, and that is the reality of false teachers. Just because a person claims to be a Christian does not necessarily mean that they are. And Peter warns his readers that false teachers infiltrate. They They, in a sense, sneak their way in. They try to sound like they say the right things, but in reality, they are attempting to pull people away from the person of Jesus Christ. They pull people away from Jesus by their teaching and by their lifestyles. And so Peter writes to warn his readers about these false teachers. In fact, we saw last week in the end of chapter 10, end of chapter 2 verse 10, that in verse 10 he says two things, two characteristics about these false teachers that they indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and they despise authority. So today, what Peter's going to do is look at both of those characteristics of a false teacher that they indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority and is going to address both of those realities, those characteristics of a false teacher. But he's going to flip-flop them and he's going to talk about their attitude toward authority first. And in describing these false teachers, he's going to tell us two things. They are arrogant And they are seeking pleasure. I'm going to read these verses out loud. You can follow along in your copy of the text. And look for Peter's description of their arrogance and his description of their pleasure seeking. Starting to read in the middle of verse 10 of 2 Peter chapter 2. Daring, self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties, whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. Suffering wrong is the wages of doing wrong. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. Their stains and blemishes reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you. 
having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way. They have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but he received a rebuke for his own transgression for a mute donkey, speaking with the voice of a man, restrained the madness of the prophet. So here we find a fuller description of two major traits or characteristics of a false teacher. False teachers despise authority. And false teachers seek their own pleasure. If a person is looking at teaching and questioning, is this really right? Two areas to look. What is their attitude toward authority? And what does their lifestyle look like? And Peter gives us a description of both. You see, Peter is writing here as a warning. He, he sees this as a very real threat to his readers. And today it is just as much of a threat to us as it was to Peter's original readers. That there are those who infiltrate, who call themselves Christians, but in reality their hearts are far from Jesus Christ. And they actually are trying to pull people away from the person of Jesus Christ. And Peter writes this in order to prepare his readers so that they can recognize this before they break something. I have three sons, the youngest of which is just learning how to kind of establish his life after college. And he and I talk through things a lot. We were on the phone this week, and, and he was on his way home from his office. And I said, by the way, did you get the oil changed in the car? Oh, no, I, I haven't done that yet. And this is like the fifth time I've brought it up. And I said, well, son, look in the upper left-hand corner of your windshield. That's when your oil changes do. Read what the odometer should say. Then look at your odometer and tell me what it really says. To my utter aghastness, he had missed it by 5,000 miles. Now, you have to understand, I grew up in a home where we took care of our stuff. My father had a philosophy that you buy the best you can afford and then you do your best to maintain what you buy. And we had a little clip art. We lived out in the country. We had a garage that you could park six cars in it. Dad had a clipboard on the wall. And like clockwork, we set up and we did oil changes. I can remember bringing my fiance home one Saturday afternoon and I was so excited. Our wedding was coming up. I was in visiting with my mom and dad came in the house and says, there's work to be done here. You can leave the women in the kitchen. And we went out and we changed oil every 3,000 miles. And here's my son who missed it by 5,000 miles. And I, out of utter dismay, said to him, 
how do you even know there's oil in the car? To which he responded, well, dad, a light would come on. (laughs) To which I responded, let's not let it get that far. We don't want to wait till the light comes on and something's broke. He says, well, there is an, I'm in a stoplight. There is an oil change place across the street. And I said, see if you can make it across the street and get it changed. And he even got a discount because of the company where he worked for. It was great. He only missed it by 5,000 miles. You know, <laughs> my favorite comment. Well, Dad, there is a light that will come on. We don't want to wait till things get broken before we take action. And that's what Peter wants to do here. He said, be careful. Just because someone claims to be a teacher does not mean that we should follow their teaching. And the closer we get to Jesus' return, the increase we're going to see of those who claim to come in the name of Jesus Christ, but in reality are far from Him. Now we've noted that it's very important that we don't loosely throw out this label on the people that, well, that's a false teacher. But as we're going to note today, Sometimes people are not necessarily a false teacher, but it's very easy to start having their attitudes and their life start looking like one. And so this passage is for us today. It's for us to beware of those who claim to be teachers. It's also for us to be careful that our lives don't start looking like the life of a false teacher. So we want to dig in, first of all here, in the middle of verse 10 down to the first part of verse 13, as Peter shows us that false teachers are arrogant. They despise authority. This is a major character trait of a false teacher. In their arrogance, they despise authority. And that's what Peter drives home here. Starting in the middle of verse 10, he says they are daring self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. Now that word in my Bible that's translated revile is kind of the key word in these first three verses. It's used in verse 10. They don't tremble when they revile angelic majesties. It's viewed, it's used in verse 11 where it says, where angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them. And it's used in verse 12 in the middle when it says reviling where they have no knowledge. And the word that's translated revile here is the Greek word from which we get our English word blasphemy. They blaspheme these angelic majesties. It it means to slander them. Now, this is a hard verse. The second half of verse 10 and verse 11 are hard verses. What is Peter talking about here? Because, first of all, he says that these false teachers revile angelic majesties. And it's a unique word there, translated angelic majesties. It's not the normal word for angel. It's actually the word for glory. Literally, this word could be translated, this verse could be translated, they don't tremble when they, they don't tremble when they revile glories. 
But, it says, angels, verse 11, and that isn't our normal word for angel, who are greater in might and power, do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. So what is Peter talking about here with these two separate words for angelic beings? These angelic majesties in verse 10 and angels in verse 11. And Peter's point is this. These false teachers are slandering these angelic majesties, something that angels don't even do. The clue to help us understand what's going on here is found in the book of Jude. We studied the book of Jude a few years ago. It is a parallel to 2 Peter. And Jude verses 8 and 9 help us understand this verse. What most likely is going on is in verse 10, these angelic majesties, that's most likely a reference to fallen angels. Those who who rebelled against God and sinned. And then the angels in verse 11 is, is a reference to good angels, those who are worshiping the Lord. We come to that conclusion because of the book of Jude. Right before, it's just a little short book, right before the book of Revelation in your New Testament. And in Jude verse 8, it says this, and you'll notice it sounds almost like Second Peter here. Yet in the same way, these men, also by dreaming, defile the flesh, reject authority, and revile angelic majesties, but... Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a riling judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So in Jude, the parallel letter to 2 Peter, Jude says, records for us, that Michael, the good archangel, had a conflict with the fallen angel, Satan. And Michael did not directly revile or slander Satan. Thus, it's most likely what Second Peter is saying here is this. These false teachers are slandering the fallen angels. That's something that the good angels wouldn't even do. Now, we don't know exactly what they did. It could be that these false teachers were just negating the very presence of angelic beings or the false teachers could have been saying things like oh there's no such thing as satan where do you come up with this stuff that's just an old wives tale there's no such thing as as fallen angels it could have been something as simple as that but as devious as that you see peter's main point here is that a false teacher's attitude toward authority is that of rejection. They they don't want to admit that there could be anybody who has any kind of power over them, even though Peter tells us that in the angelic realm, they are greater in might and power. A false teacher rejects authority. A false teacher does not want to yield themselves to anyone who is in a position above them. That is Peter's point. In fact, Peter says in verses 12 and 13 that the end of the false teacher is just like an animal. 
An animal without reason has one end. It's going to die. And so in verse 12, he says, But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. Meaning they have one thing waiting for them, eternal judgment. It's interesting, verses 12 through 16 is, again, one long, complicated Greek sentence. It's just one sentence. But the main part of the sentence is here in verse 12. The main clause is simply this, but these will also be destroyed. That's Peter's point of verse 12. These false teachers reject authority And their end is sure, eternal judgment. Trying to figure out if what someone is teaching is right or wrong. One way of determining that, other than looking at the rest of scripture itself, is to look at their attitude toward authority. For six years, I had the privilege of serving on the board of trustees of a very large evangelical nonprofit that had ministry all over the world. And having been on that board of trustees, I had the opportunity to interface with some of the evangelical giants of today, some of the the big shots, which was rather disheartening. Because while... One of these men in particular, I would not call a false teacher, but his attitude was like that of a false teacher. He was arrogant, flying around in his private jet, not yielding to the elders of his own church, not yielding to the counsel of other evangelical leaders in the United States. You see, it's very important that we not only use what Peter writes here to look out for those who are truly false teachers trying to pull people away from Jesus Christ, but we also look to our own hearts and make sure that we don't start resembling the characteristics of a false teacher. And here Peter says, One major characteristic of a false teacher, they're arrogant. There's not a humbleness there. They're not willing to yield to those in authority over them. They really aren't willing to submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Peter goes on, and not only says that the false teacher is caught up in arrogance. But also, look at their life. Not Don't just look at their attitude. Look at their actions. Because a false teacher is not only arrogant, despising authority. Peter goes on in verses 13 through 16 to say that false teachers seek their own pleasure. You remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 and 16. Matthew 7, 
15 and 16 says this. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. And so that's what Peter's message is here. Look at their lifestyle. See what you see. And here, in the second half of verse 13 down through verse 16, Peter gives us eight traits of a false teacher's pleasure-seeking. What does it mean that they are just out to seek their own pleasure? Eight characteristics here, starting in the middle of verse 13. Characteristic number one in the middle of verse 13 says this. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. That little word pleasure there is used several places in the New Testament, always with negative connotations. It always has a negative meaning. For example, James uses it in James chapter 4, verse 1 and verse 3, saying, you wonder why your prayers aren't answered? It's because you're acting with selfish motives so that you can use stuff for your own pleasure. That's our word here. It's actually the Greek word where we get our English word hedonism or a hedonist. That's the Greek word. Hedonane. It is selfish pleasure. That's characteristic number one or trait number one of, of a self-pleasure-seeking false teacher. They are in it for the pleasure, and it says they revel in the daytime. They don't even care what anybody thinks. They're just outward, and I'm going to make sure that what I want, I get. Number two, it tells us they are stains and blemishes. The best way to define what Peter means by stains and blemishes here is to look at the opposite. And he uses the opposite in chapter 3, verse 14, when he talks about how we want to be found by Jesus when he comes back. And in verse 14 it says, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, Spotless and blameless. So that's how we want to be found by Jesus. Spotless and blameless. But what are these false teachers? They, instead of being spotless and blameless, they are stains and blemishes. Characteristic number three. They revel in their deceptions as they carouse with you. Most likely what Peter's talking about here, again, is found in the parallel of Jude, verse 12. And if you go to Jude 12, it says that the false teachers that Jude's talking about love to come and get together with the church family and celebrate in the Lord's table and the the love, the agape supper that they have before the Lord's table. And yet... They are there for selfish reasons. Just to satisfy their own selfish desires. And here Peter says that's the characteristics of these guys. They revel in their deceptions as they carouse with you. Number four. They have eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin. 
Now, while it's possible for a woman to be a false teacher here, Peter's talking about men. He uses all masculine uh, uh, pronouns. He's using all masculine nouns. These men, it says, have eyes full of adultery. Literally, it could be translated, they ha- have eyes full of an adulteress. Meaning, they can't even look at a woman without having a heart that desires for an illicit relationship. That's all they think about. They're driven by it. It says here that they never cease from sin. Number five, they entice unstable souls. What's an unstable soul? Look at the opposite of it in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, when Peter describes those to whom he is writing as, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them, and have been established in the truth which is present with you. See, Peter saying, you Christians to whom I write, you're established in the truth. You're mature. What's the prey for the false teacher? The one who's not established in the truth. The one who here is an unstable soul. The most vulnerable person to the attack of a false teacher is the one who hasn't grown in their knowledge of Jesus Christ. The one who hasn't sought to know more and more of Him. Many of you know that my mother remarried late in life to a man who came to know Jesus through the ministry of Charles Stanley watching him on TV and he called me up the very next day and said I just prayed to receive Christ last night I want to get baptized at Faith Bible Church and this 80 year old man came to Christ was baptized at Faith Bible Church a couple years later met my mom said I want to take your mom out for a date then he married her well this guy he, he comes to me and says, man, if you, I, I go over to the house and he's reading like a, a, a full volume commentary on the Bible. And then he says, have you ever heard of Charles Ryrie? I said, yeah, I have, Bob. And, and he's reading Ryrie's theology. He just, he was just taking, he was reading commentaries for his recreational reading. Why? Because he'd grown up and lived in a church where he never heard the word preached. And he just wanted to grow. He wanted to get grounded. And here Peter says what these false teachers do is they look for people who haven't grown and they key in on them. Next, it says that they have a heart trained in greed. They're experts in greed. These guys are so good at being greedy that they've actually had to work at it. They have had, over years of experience, they have perfected their greediness. That's quite a statement. Then it says they are accursed children, similar to what Paul says in Ephesians 2-3, referring to children of wrath. These guys have one thing waiting for them, that's God's judgment. And then he says, finally, the eighth characteristic of self-pleasure is found in verses 15 and 16. He says, they're just like Balaam. He refers here back to the account of numbers in the Old Testament, chapter 22, 23, and 24. He says here, 
Forsaken the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Baor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but he received a rebuke for his own transgression for a mute donkey, speaking with the voice of a man, restrained the madness of the prophet. Now remember the account with me. There's this country, this nation called Moab, this region of the Moabites. And Israel was getting ready to come in and capture them. Well, Numbers tells us that the king of Moab was this guy named Balak. And Balak was scared. So he found himself a private prophet, Balaam. And says to Balaam, I'm going to give you a boatload of money. I want you to put a curse on Israel. Balaam says, fine, show me the money. And they give Balaam the money. And then Balaam asks the Lord, should I put a curse on Israel? And God directs Balaam, no, go back to Balak. And so evidently, Balaam's heart is not right. And as Balaam goes back to Balak, it tells us in the text that the angel of the Lord was in the road with a sword in his hand, ready to take Balaam's life. And Balaam couldn't see the angel of the Lord, most likely the pre-incarnate appearance of of Jesus Christ before he left the throne room of heaven and took on human human flesh is standing in the road and Balaam's donkey can see the angel of the Lord and won't move forward. So what's Balaam do? He gets off and beats the daylights out of his donkey. Gets back on the donkey, the donkey won't go forward. Gets off, beats his donkey. Donkey won't go forward. He gets off, he beats his donkey again. Finally, the Lord enables the donkey to speak and the donkey says to Balaam, why do you keep beating me up? I'm trying to protect you. And then Balaam's eyes are open and he sees the angel of the Lord standing in the path with a sword. Now, Peter's point here is a false teacher acts just like Balaam. They are, show me the money. Give me the money, just like Balaam did. But they were spiritually imperceptive. They don't have a grasp on the things of God. And so Peter here is challenging his readers. Two things. Be careful. These guys are out there. If you question any teaching, do two things. Look at their heart attitude. What's their response toward authority? And then look at their lives. How are they living their lives? What does their fruit look like? Every year, every spring, Barbara and I put in a small garden. This year was disaster. We have an inordinate number of deer that live near us because there's a couple hundred acres of timber right across the road from us that is no hunting. There's timber just 80 acres to the south of us that's no hunting. There's deer everywhere. And they just love to hang out in our garden. Plus, geese everywhere. This last Friday, I had 250 Canada geese in my backyard. Now, talk about annoying. So between the deer... And the geese and my dog, they just destroyed our garden this spring. So much so that stuff would come up, we'd come out the next morning, eaten off. Stuff would come up, eaten off. So we planted and replanted and replanted like three times. So much so that we couldn't remember what was what. 
I knew I had cucumbers out there. I knew we had acorn squash. I knew we had some canning pumpkin, pie pumpkins. Why? Because pumpkin pie, of course. And I knew we had put some zucchini out, which is still an enigma for men everywhere. What is the purpose of a zucchini? So we had all these plants, and uh, I knew what the cucumber plants were, but I had no idea what the difference is between the zucchini and the pumpkin and the acorn squash. So what do we do? We're just going to have to wait and see what it produces to identify it. And here, Peter is saying, are you confused? Look for the fruit. Look and see what their heart attitude is like. Look and see what their actions are like. Now, that's Peter's main emphasis here. But I also think that it's important for us to make sure that we look at this list and look to our own heart. You know, guys in the room, Peter talks about a false teacher has eyes that have they they they're not ever satisfied they always look at a woman as an object that they can conquer and today you can hear guys say well that's just how guys think and try to justify that no it's not it's not right we have to make sure that we call sin sin in our own hearts in our own lives so when we look at a list like this while peter is describing this as the traits of a false teacher, we've got to make sure that our own hearts and lives are not marked by some of these traits. We also look and he, and Peter says a false teacher loves to prey on those who aren't firmly grounded. How much more should that make us want to pursue what Peter says for us to do in chapter one? We've been equipped with everything we need to grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ. So in chapter 1, verses 5 through 11, Peter says, go for it. Get grounded. Grow in your knowledge of Jesus Christ. Grow more like him so that his life is seen in yours. And Peter here says, you want to be safe from a false teacher? Grow. Peter has these verses here for a reason. He doesn't want us to get sucked in by a a false teacher so far that the warning light has to come on saying that something's already broke. He wants us to be aware. Just because somebody calls himself a teacher or a Christian doesn't mean that they are. We have to look at their teaching, the words, the content of their teaching, but we also have to look at their attitude toward authority and their own lifestyle. False teachers are arrogant pleasure seekers. I'm going to ask you to stand with me this morning. We are not going to have a closing song today. But I did want to just challenge us. If you are here today, and if you don't know for sure that you are in right relationship with God, one of our leaders here at Faith Bible Church, one of our elders, will be back in the prayer room directly behind you. And encourage you just to go back. They have material they can just hand to you. Luke, you can look it up and look verses up in your own Bible from that material that teach you how you can know for sure you are right with God. Or maybe you're here today and your heart is just burdened. I would encourage you just spend some time 
in prayer back in the prayer room before you leave. I'm going to go ahead and close this in prayer. Father, we thank you for this reminder uh, that Peter gives us of the importance of growing to spiritual maturity and of the dangers of false teachers. Help us in our own hearts to be willing to call sin, sin in our own lives so that we don't actually resemble the characteristics of a false teacher. Help us to have hearts this week as we go forward desiring to know more of you and experience Jesus' life lived out through ours. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.